Tortoise. Hello and welcome to Trendy from Tortoise. I'm Rachel Wolfe. And I'm John Curtis. This is a podcast which tries to make sense of a story by starting with the numbers. I run Public First, a policy consultancy in Westminster. And I'm Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University in Glasgow. This week we're going to talk about what feels like the eternal topic, Brexit. We'll take a look back at what the numbers tell us about our past relationship with the EU. We'll look at what really drove people to vote in 2016 and we'll look at how that's changed. What are Brexit attitudes now and how, as an issue, is it driving who people want to vote for? Okay, to start, our first set of numbers. We're going going, going back to history here. The 1975 referendum on whether or not the United Kingdom should remain in what was then called the common market. 67% said yes and 33% said no. Um, So we should just always remember the 2016 referendum was not the first referendum in this country on the subject. It was back in 1975. Now, it was a slightly intriguingly timed referendum because we actually joined the European Union, the common market in 1973. But we only had the referendum on whether or not we should stay in in 1975. John, it's probably worth explaining to listeners who might not know, you've talked about the common market, that the EU obviously wasn't quite the same kind of entity back in the 1970s. And we'll talk about the fact that it was the Tories who were broadly in favour of it. And and certainly the, the sense now is it was, it was mostly about trade. I mean, the argument essentially was, by those who were in favour, was that um, the then six original members of the common market had enjoyed much better economic growth in the post-war period since they'd come together, particularly since they'd come together in 1958, whereas the United Kingdom was the sick man of Europe, as it was described as that time, and that therefore we needed to join this club and to join this common market in order to profit from the trade relationships and to break out of the what at that stage we called the stop-go cycle, i.e. as soon as the economy started doing well, inflation went up, so then we had to stop, and as soon as we did that, unemployment went up. Well, anyway, um, it took a while for us to get in, not least because the initial reaction of the then President of France, President de Gaulle, was a very firm no to our uh, uh, application to join. Some things never change. Some things never (laughs) say. By the uh, 1970s, the Conservative Party, it's worth remembering, it was the Conservative Party under Edward Heath that took us into the common market in 1973. And I think this is is really interesting because this is a podcast fundamentally about trends. In there, you have some things that have changed very dramatically. It was the Conservative Party as part of its overarching desire for economic reform that wanted to take advantage of trade opportunities with Europe. Labour was very split. Now, which we'll talk about later, it looks like the the opposite. Although, which we might also talk about later, of course, that, that chunk of the Labour left, which was always pretty sceptical of Europe uh, has a sort of continued on through through Corbyn, and there was obviously a lot of questions about whether Corbyn really wanted to stay part of the European Union or not. The reason why we had the referendum in the end was indeed because Howard Wilson, the then Labour leader, when Labour were in opposition, 
basically crafted a compromise that said if Labour were to win an election, which they eventually did in 1974, they would hold a referendum on the subject. So this was a device to keep the party together. Also familiar. Very, very familiar <laughs> to what happened in 2016. But in other ways, this was a very, very different ref uh, referendum. I've already talked about what some of the arguments were. What was perhaps the biggest issue for voters? Immigration? No, actually, there's no relationship between how people voted in 1975 and their attitudes to whether or not we had too many migrants or not. The issue was actually was prices. We have to remember it was an era of very high inflation. That might sound familiar now. Um, but the claimed impact of us cutting ourselves off from certain sources of goods from the Commonwealth, of which New Zealand butter was the iconographic uh, example, um, uh, what was for uh, many people a concern. It was meant we we're going to have to pay for more expensive French butter rather than that nice cheap stuff we were getting from across the other half of the world. That was, that was an absolutely central issue. But also look at who voted which way. It wasn't younger people who particularly voted to remain inside the common market. Actually, they were slightly less likely to do so. What was tr uh, true was that there was something of a gap between middle class and working class people. Middle class folk were rather more likely uh, to be in favour. But the other thing we should we bear in mind, this was a there, there was no guarantee that the United Kingdom was going to vote in favour. If you go back to the end of January 1975, so six months before the referendum was eventually held, actually Gallup's poll at that point had slightly more people saying they would vote to get out than to continue. But in the early months of 1975, as Howard Wilson was supposedly renegotiating our relationship, okay, again, sound familiar? David Cameron went off and renegotiated our relationship through to the February 2016 Council. But in Howard Wilson's case, that renegotiation, although many people suggested it didn't really change very much, was sold with success politically, such that there was a dramatic rise during course 1975 for us to be in favour of staying in. And we ended up with that 67% vote in favour. So very, very different referendum, different issues, different kind of people voting in favour and a different disposition in terms of you know, the Conservative Party and Conservative voters being rather more inclined to back the idea than with those on the Labour side of the arguments. This is all worth remembering when we hear our politicians now speaking as though the positions the parties currently have on attitudes towards the European Union is part of some ancient biblical text. These are all actually relatively recent dispositions inside both of our uh, principal political parties. I just want to come back to this shift and this question of do people follow their parties? Mm -hmm. Do parties follow their people? But also how much this is a reflection of changes in reality rather than changes in attitude. So we've, there, there are some fundamental things that changed in the European Union, what now is called the European Union sure. in that time. It became much bigger, encompassed far more countries. Freedom of movement became a principle yeah. and it became more interested in regulating labour markets. So, so there's often a kind of internal argument that happens about whether Margaret Thatcher, who is still held up as this idol of the Conservative Party, would have backed Brexit 
or not. Because, of course, the United Kingdom was amongst the members that were particularly keen on the expansion of the European Union into Eastern Europe. There's this fascinating split between... Uh, within those who are Eurosceptic, between those who really like actually quite higher higher immigration and fundamentally are pro-free trade and saw Brexit as a way of um, liberalising the economy and those particularly voters who saw it as a way of controlling borders and migration and quite plausibly regulating labour markets more and funding public services. We'll come back to that. But I think it is important to stress that Potentially, one of the reasons attitudes changed is because the reality changed. This wasn't this wasn't just people changing how they feel. Uh, uh, oh, sure, and, and and amongst the crucial, well, a couple of crucial realities, uh, three actually. One, of course, is that you know by, by the beginning of the nineteen nineties, in the wake of the row about the Maastricht Treaty, which is the treaty that turned the common market, or, or effectively then the European communities into the, into the European Union and freedom of movement, the single market, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All of it is a product of that era. You see the Conservative Party move in the opposite direction. John Major has his party split and Conservative supporters start to move, follow their party in the opposite direction. So that's change number one. The Conservative Party becomes increasingly Eurosceptic. The second change of reality is not only the introduction of freedom of movement, but also that around the turn of the century, and again, we'll talk much more about this in a couple of weeks' time, the UK changes from being a country which was typically a net exporter of people to being a net importer with the European Union, uh, particularly in the wake of the admission of the European Union countries in 2004, becoming an important uh, uh, source of that. So yeah, the, the, the immigration therefore potentially becomes a, a crucially um, important issue. So certainly the reality does change and that does cause some people to uh, reevaluate uh, reevaluate their position. We're now, I think, legitimately heading towards the late 90s and the 2000s, where we had a new European split in the Labour government between Blair, who was very keen on taking us into the euro, and Brown, who was pretty sceptical, the campaign against the euro in 2000, which I think was before Brexit, the most visible and possibly most successful kind of Eurosceptic campaign and was, of course, run by uh, Dominic Cummings, who comes up again very significantly 16 years later. Yes, indeed. Um, And the euro has never been that popular. Um, Now, of course, it was a source of division inside. The the issue was a source of division inside the Conservative Party at at that time. And eventually, in 1996, John Major had to promise that we wouldn't go in without a referendum. Again, resorting to the referendum device as a way of keeping a party together, because Michael Heseltine, the then Deputy Prime Minister, and Ken Clark, the Chancellor, are arch-Europhiles, but the rest of the Conservative Party not in the same place. So Major reluctantly keeps his party together in that way. And that then eventually forces Labour a few months later, to also adopt the same position. But it's then at this point, it's immigration starts to become a crucial issue. Um, And of course, the the other thing that perhaps is part of an accident here is that it's around 2010 or so, both Ipsos data and British Socialist data show us, show the public becoming more Eurosceptic. This is now 
UKIP becoming a significant player, but not least of the reasons why UKIP become a significant player is the decision of the Liberal Democrats to go into coalition with the Conservatives. That therefore meant the Liberal Democrats were no longer available as a party of protest when the Conservative end of the coalition became unpopular at around 2012. And that's when UKIP began to take off. And that's when David Cameron promises another referendum, which proved, which was eventually was the referendum of 2016, almost undoubtedly in the expectation that the Conservatives would not get a majority in the 2015 election and that therefore the Liberal Democrats will be able to stop this happening. But there we go. One of those misjudgments of history. I, I started working in politics later than you, John, in, in 2006. And, and for most of that period, that decade, there was a desperation among the leadership of the Conservative Party for people not to talk about Europe because it was seen as a fringe issue full of slightly mad people who did not particularly appeal to voters. There was a desire to modernise the Conservative Party and move on. And people kept banging on about you know, common agricultural policies and freedom. And and so this was the first time... David Cameron called them fruit, fruit cakes, didn't he? may he? have called them fruit cakes. And he wanted them to stop banging on about it. And he had, a, I think, a, a legitimate point that they didn't particularly appeal to the electorate. So this was the first time that he had sort of accepted making Europe a bigger thing. We should take ourselves to the run-up to the 2016 referendum, because as we, as we kind of hinted earlier, David Cameron did... Put, once the 2015 election had been held... And much to everybody's surprise, the Conservatives uh, had got themselves a majority, albeit an hour one of 12, but it meant that Mr Cameron was committed to holding this referendum. And he was clearly committed, personally at least, to holding it quite quickly. He was perhaps somebody who wanted to focus on other issues. So we started another renegotiation, not dissimilar to what Howard Wilson had did uh, in 1975. And I think in the end, the central issue in that renegotiation was whether or not, given the importance of immigration at this stage, whether or not we were going to be allowed to have what became known as an emergency break on freedom of movement, that we would be able temporarily to limit some of the freedom of movement provisions in order to reduce the level of immigration. And but However, the council that was held in February 2016 which is when the negotiations ended, Mr Cameron failed to get anything like that. And it rapidly became clear thereafter, although at this stage the opinion polls were suggesting that there was a narrow majority in favour of uh, staying inside the EU, the polls failed to move. So I was in Downing Street at the time of this renegotiation, though not working on Brexit. And and it's fair to say it was widely considered as a catastrophic disappointment, even at the time, although people still thought that they might well win the referendum. The, the, the fact that he had been unable to meet, and we, we should come to this because the, the, the centrality of immigration in Brexit, I think, is still much debated. He had met a core concern of the voters, was a big blow to those who wanted to stay in. But but let's move to our second set of numbers. It's 2016, Indeed. which I suspect most people know, which is, of course, 52-48, the percentage of people who voted Leave over Remain. Indeed. There is an enormous divide uh, this time around um, with uh, those aged 18 to 24 uh, uh, only around 28% of them voting leave, 
amongst those age 65 and over, nearly two thirds uh, voting uh, to get out. Secondly, education is the big other big demographic division. Wasn't particularly evident back in 1975. Only 22% of those with a university degree voted to leave. 72% of those without any educational uh, qualifications. Um, and of course, conservative voters were pretty evenly divided, probably slightly more of them voted to get up than to stay in. Labour was split, but was around two to one um, in favour of staying in. So the, demo the, the demography and the politics of this referendum, as well as the backdrop, was very, very different indeed. So it's worth probably stressing a couple of things. The first is, as you said, there was this huge age divide. There was a huge education divide. Some of that education divide, of course, is an age divide, because in our last week's episode, we talked about the fact that now a huge proportion of young people are educated to degree level. A lot of older people have GCSE level education or wouldn't have been GCSEs then, but no more. So, so sometimes we mix up these two factors. So the, the other thing that I think is worth picking up on 2016, which is that trend you were talking about, about the views in different political parties, because there was still within the Labour Party a little bit of that Benite left slightly sceptical of the European Union. There were many accusations that Corbyn was not really campaigning for the European Union because he came from that tradition. And mm -hmm. simultaneously, this obviously radically split apart the Conservative Party between those who broadly saw the European Union as a force for economic good yeah. and those who saw it as either a force for economic ill, as you mentioned, people who were convinced that this was a protectionist unit stopping us trading with the rest of the world, or possibly more powerfully to voters as a sort of social ill. It was stopping us controlling our borders, having control yeah. over our own laws. So this has, this has not historically ever been something that is clean within political parties. No, indeed. I mean, it's worth remembering even um, the Scottish National Party, which since 1990 at least, has been very strongly in favour of the European Union. Around one in three of its supporters voted to leave. This is an issue that all that split um, all the parties, except one part. I, I, have, I have to say to Rachel, you said, you know, it's never, uh, you know, uh, everybody. I do have one or two data sets from 2016, where if you actually look at the views of people who declared themselves as UKIP supporters, 100% of them do actually say that they voted to leave the European Union. It's the first time in my wow. professional life that I have ever found that data set. But of course, we then, as you said, Rachel, we should then also talk about the motivations that underlay this vote. And I think, um, I mean, people disagree about their relative importance, and in part, it depends on what you mean. But there were, it's pretty clear that there were three issues that were central um, in the campaign. One was the economy, which in a sense is in part at least an echo of 1975. But the second is the issue of immigration, which wasn't there in 1975. And the third, which was encapsulated in that brilliant slogan, take back control, um, is the question of you know, legitimacy, controlling our, uh, our own laws, etc. So, um, I mean, from what, from your perspective, do you think is the relative importance of those three things? I think it is worth qualifying the third, because this has been indeed one of the big debates about how much uh, was driven by 
on the Leave side, because the Leave side tended not to vote for the economy. That's what drove Remain votes. Yeah, sure. Uh, So on the Leave side, uh, immigration versus control and sovereignty. Mm -hmm. So what I have Mm -hmm. generally picked up, and I'd be interested if you agree with this, John, particularly in focus groups, is, is often sovereignty is in itself partly an argument about borders and immigration. I, I, sovereignty gets linked to people's views about particular issues because there is a question mark about the legitimacy of the European Union within this country. The fundamental weakness and failure of the European project inside the United Kingdom is that relatively few of us feel European. I mean, British social attitudes it's tended to be around one in six. Uh, over the years when uh, Eurobarometer, uh, which is the big European Union survey was conducted, it would often find when it asked people uh, whether you felt European or felt British, Danish, whatever, or what mixture of the two, that people in the UK were least likely of any EU country to recognize, to say they were being European. So it's the fact that we don't feel European and therefore we don't necessarily think of Europe as being us as opposed to other, that has always meant that the issue of Brussels telling us what to do has always been politically contentious. So I think to that extent, at least, you know, uh, the, the, the issue of sovereignty stroke legitimacy is an underlying aspect of uh, the, our attitudes towards the European Union that then, yes, it gets translated into particular issues. Well, that's the impact of the European Union on their sense of identity, which is linked to control. Those relationships were actually stronger than the relationship with people's attitudes towards what they thought the impact of Brexit would be on immigration. All right, that's that's an interesting that's very thing interesting. about it, well, which in a sense it shows it is ultimately more about control. But um, so you know, basically ninety percent no, of people who thought the economy would be worse as a result of Brexit voted remain. Ninety percent of people who thought it'd be better voted leave. Although there weren't that many people, lots of Leave voters just said. It won't make any difference. It'll be all right on the night, okay? Whereas if you take the equivalent analysis for immigration, it's only around 70% of people who thought immigration would be lower voted leave. and Not many people thought it would be higher, but again, only around 65% of them voted remain. But of course, there were quite a lot of people who thought that immigration would reduce. So even so, um, it it matters. But um, certainly, you know, it's partly people looking at different agendas and different subjects. But I think you're right. I mean, control and identity and immigration are undoubtedly all interwoven with each other. And you can certainly see that uh, it's questions of control and identity that certainly have a slightly stronger relationship. And I suppose looking now, we, we recently did some polling asking people what were the key reasons they voted for Brexit. And it's fair to say that in the interviewing period, people often change their minds or slightly forget why they vote a particular way. But 68% of 2016 Leave voters would say it was it was control over laws. And 61% would say a key reason was control over immigration. So there is a, there is a little bit of a, a kind of difference there, although I think most people voted for a combination too. I think there's another interesting thing though here, and I'd be really interested in your view on this, John, which is the level of passion and how much that passion hardened after the result. Because I think there is often an assumption that everyone feels equally strongly about things they vote on. And if you live in Westminster or if you spend your life in politics or if you're a kind of relatively recent graduate, your your life is full of passionate political debate. But one of the things that I think we picked up on in, in, in kind of recent research is 
this is not something most people, certainly most leave voters think about most of the time. It, it's not central to them. And I think there's a there's a question about whether one of the phenomenons post-Brexit is it made people who vote Remain feel much more passionately than they might have done otherwise because they lost and because it became an identity thing. And so attitudes have changed because of the referendum or, or at least passion. Well, we started asking people not only whether or not do you think of yourself being conservative Labour or not, but do you think of yourself as a Remainer or a Lever? We were getting levels of people who are saying they were a very strong Remainer or a very strong Lever in the four, at the 40% level plus, which was the kinds of levels of very people saying they were very strong Conservative or Labour that we had not seen since the 1960s. But that was true in truth on both sides of the debate, okay? Now, what is true, however, is that the passion was almost, was somewhat stronger and always has been amongst Remainers and Leavers. And there was, Remainers always like, like to think of themselves, you know, we are the rational <laughs> folk who are thinking of this as um, something that, uh, you know, you know, we're thinking of it instrumentally. Whereas the levers are all are all passion and you know not really uh, uh, thinking think things through properly. I think the honest truth is that remainers. I think you're right. Are if anything more passionate about Brexit now than they were, um, uh, because they feel cut off from something that, that that they have indeed have lost. We'll be back in a minute, but first a short break. You've got your third set of numbers, John, which is fifty six. 44. I hope everyone's remembering all these numbers. So this is the contrast to what happened in 2016. If we now take the half dozen opinion polls that have asked people, would you vote in a referendum to stay out or to rejoin? 56% say they would vote to rejoin. For a very, very long time now, we've had more people saying they would vote to go back inside the European Union then would vote to go back out. Um, there are two things underlying that. One thing that actually has underlain uh, the fact that probably Remain were, were ahead for quite a while, even at the time of the 2019 election, is that the people who did not vote in 2016, some of them were too young to vote, but that's by no means all of them, on average in opinion polls, amongst those who have expressed the view at the moment, there are about three to one in favour and, of And it's joy. presumably also the case that there are a smaller number of people who were around in 2016 who are no longer with us and they would have been Leave voters on majority. Indeed. Demographic change has also uh, had some impact. But what is also now true, um, and it's something that essentially uh, started to happen what during 2022, is that whereas 81% of Remain voters currently say they vote to rejoin, uh, only 72% of Leave voters say they would vote to stay out. So in other words, the loyalty of Leave voters to their side of the argument is somewhat less than that of Remain voters. Now, the truth is, as you know, the, the, the research you, you've been involved in, most people have not changed their minds. Only 15% of Leave voters at the moment say they vote to rejoin, only 9% of Remain voters say they'd vote to stay out. But of course, because the result was so close in 2016, even that movement is enough 
to generate something like a 4 or 5% swing. And it's probably worth stressing that underneath these seeming sort of big splits, there there is some uniformity because even among Leave voters, less than one in five think Brexit is going well. It's not that they think this yeah. has been a triumph. It's that in significant part, they think the reason it's gone badly is because the government is incompetent. They think it might turn yes. out well in the end. And so they don't and, and they don't feel that strongly. Like it's not it's not driving them. Whereas for Remain voters it is it is more passionate. Well I think I think the crucial thing is that, that there are two reasons why Leave voters might be disappointed. Okay. Reason number one is that, oh dear, I think we made a mistake. And these are above all the folk who now think that the economy is is weaker as a result. I mean, across the public as a whole, 51% of this recent polling think that the economy is now weaker uh, in, in the wake of Brexit. Now, mostly voters are not of that view, but the minority who are of that view are the group above all who are the ones who have changed their minds. There's another set of Leave voters who will say, I don't think it's going terribly well, who basically don't think that it's been implemented properly. They think, you know, the Brexit deal is too soft, um, or we've not taken enough advantage of the opportunities that would arise out of Brexit to deregulate, etc., etc. So the Leave movement, therefore, in a sense, has got fractured between, as it were, the ardent Leavers who are disappointed um, that those who are kind of still roughly where they were, and then those who are disappointed about um, the fact that um, it's not turned out in a way, and they've now, uh, they're amongst those who've changed their minds. I think the final question is, what does that mean for politics? Because we are not at the moment promising another referendum, and none of the political parties want to go near that. But how much is this driving party voting, and how much therefore might it then drive policy? Well, the answer to it, I think, is not as much as it did in 2019, not least because the Conservative Party has lost a substantial chunk of people who voted leave in 2016, and indeed a substantial chunk of people who now vote to stay out. Some of whom have gone to Labour, but quite a lot of whom have gone to Reform UK. Which, of course, is the Uh, successor to UKIP. To the Brexit Party, yeah. But... What I think we have now discovered is this. Of course, you know, almost undoubtedly one of the reasons why you know, we wouldn't expect the link between attitudes towards Brexit and party support to be as strong as it was is because on the opposition side, or at least as far as the Labour and the Democrats are concerned, this has not been a subject they have wanted to pursue. And in the case of the Labour Party, the calculation they made two or three years ago was that we cannot afford to talk about Brexit because we are never going to win an election unless we reconnect with Leave voters, many from disproportionately working class. What I think we now know is that that assumption is not correct. Now, um, why do I say that? Well, um, if you actually work out the... And here, the crucial thing is, you, you cannot get at this if you still look at how people voted in 2016. You have to look at it in terms of where are people's attitudes now. Um, well, as I've said, attitudes have shifted since 2016. So three things have happened. That has meant that although Labour has, has indeed had some relative success amongst those who voted Leave in 2016, 
actually the impact of that on the character of Labour's vote has been much less than people might have anticipated. Basically, 75% of Labour's vote still comes from people who would vote to rejoin. Back in 2019, 82% of Labour's vote was coming from people who voted, who would have voted to remain at that point. So what's going on here? Well, number one, people who voted Labour in 2019, having voted Leave in 2016, are amongst those who've changed their minds about Brexit. They've shifted by around 10 points in favour of rejoining. They're influenced by their party, but they've also moved like the rest of the public. The second thing that has happened, of course, is that the Labour is very strong amongst younger voters. Younger voters are overwhelmingly pro-rejoin. So that is also bolstering Labour's rejoin ranks. And the third thing is that the people who have shifted from Conservative to Labour are more, much more likely to have changed their minds about Brexit than those who have not. So in other words, the proportion of people who have shifted for Conservative to Labour who voted Leave in 2016, who would now vote to rejoin is much higher than the 15% amongst Leave voters in general. So there is an association there in terms of dynamics. You put all those things together and you discover that actually Labour's vote still looks very heavily pro-EU. Now, of course, in the end, the reason why this is the case, you know, why are the Conservatives in trouble? Why are Labour ahead? Nothing to do with Brexit, at least directly, and everything to do with Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. But this essentially is an across-the-board movement, um, but has therefore meant that Labour have got itself in a winning position, even though its Brexit support is still very, very heavily rejoined. And while the Labour Party undoubtedly will not change its mind between now and the election, it is on course, if it wins the election, to be voted overwhelmingly by an electorate that wants to rejoin. And that potentially creates tensions for a Labour government down the track. Still, perhaps that whole subject is yet another podcast, maybe when uh, the election is, is rather closer. In the meantime, perhaps it's time for us to say goodbye. So remember, if you've got any questions for us or there's anything you'd like us to discuss or to take a look at, then you can email us at trendy at tortoisemedia.com. Peter Callery has emailed us with a question. What might be the implications of lowering the voting age, uh, perhaps to 16 would they have different salient issues to older adults? John, what do you think? Well, certainly younger people, of course, are particularly concerned about their, someone that needs to get onto the housing market, number one. And two, something we talked about last week, uh, for half of them at least, the issue of how they fund their university tuition also becomes a crucial issue. But of course, the two other issues that then also arise, one is would they vote in the first place? Now, those who advocate reducing the voting age um, say that um, actually the international evidence and also the evidence from Scotland and Wales is that 16 and 17 year olds are more likely to vote than 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds. So if we get them early, they are more likely to develop the habit of voting. I have to say, I'm a bit of a cynic on this. I think this is in the category like proportional representation, where you support it using all sorts of arguments when you think it might benefit your political party and drop it like a stone if you think it won't. That's it from Trendy for this week. I'm Rachel Wolf, And I'm John Curtis. Thanks for listening. New episodes are published every Thursday. Do rate and review us. It really helps people find us. And follow the feed so you don't miss an episode. 
tortoise.